Hey everybody, it's Josh and Chuck, your friends, and we are here to tell you about our upcoming book that's coming out this fall, the first ever Stuff You Should Know book, Chuck. That's right. What's the cool, super cool title we came up with? It's Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. That's right. And it's coming along so great. We're super excited, you mm -hmm. guys. The uh, illustrations are amazing. Yes. And there's the look of the book. It's all just, it's exactly what we hoped it would be. And we cannot wait for you to get your hands on it. Yes, we can't. Um, and you don't have to wait, actually. Well, you do have to wait, but you don't have to wait to order. Uh, you can go pre-order the book right now, everywhere you get books. And you will eventually get a special gift for pre-ordering, which we're working on right now. That's right. So check it out soon, coming this fall. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and it's just the two of us. Um, we can make it if we try. Just the two of us, Chuck and I. That's right. Uh, and we are Stuff You Should Know, the heroin edition. Yeah, I haven't covered heroin yet. No, we haven't. We have not. Um, and Ed helped us out with this, and I love how he just put it straight up, heroin is a demon. <laughs> I'm like, geez, way to be objective. You know what occurred to me? Because I like to think of things through the lens of movies a lot of times. Uh Pot movies, rarely, if ever, any good. What? Have you ever seen Dazed and Confused, my friend? I don't consider—we we talked about this on Movie Crush, Noel and I. I don't consider that a, a weed movie, uh, although it's featured heavily. I would call it one of the main characters. <laughs> I don't call it a weed movie. I, I consider weed movies like Cheech and Chong movies. What about Half-Baked? Uh, Half-Baked, How High, like movies where it's literally just about marijuana— like Days and Confused about a bunch of friends in the 70s on okay, the last day of okay. school. Fair enough. Fair enough. You but won me over. I, other people, though, said, no, you know, you're wrong. Days Confused is a weed movie. But let's say that is a weed movie. That's one good one. Okay. Like Cheech and Chong movies are okay, but they're really not that good. No, they're <laughs> really not. <laughs> uh, cocaine movies. I don't – are there cocaine movies? Yeah, there's like Blow was a cocaine movie. and Yeah, it's but that's usually about, about dealing. Some, yeah, for sure. Blow or, is or, about – as cocaine a movie as the, they get. I can't think of one that's just straight up like following some cocaine users. Yeah, like that, because it's probably like no one wants to see that. Right. <laughs> but heroin movies are great. Well, I mean, you got what? Train spotting? Oh, P Panic in Needle Park, train spotting. Tootsie. T Tootsie. Um, and, and, you know, if, even if it's not about heroin, stuff like Pulp Fiction, like, I think heroin has been romanticized mm -hmm. in film uh, far more effectively and more often than any other drug. Right. Which is pretty messed up because if there is a drug out there where Nancy Reagan actually was right for once in her life and wasn't just lying <laughs> through her teeth, yeah, it is definitely, definitely heroin. Yeah. It is a genuinely bad, bad drug and basically the last thing that should be romanticized. Um, but you're right. I think they've made some pretty good movies about it. And I think people are like, wow, those jazz cats are really into that that skag, man. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't imagine that there aren't people out there who haven't tried heroin because it was romanticized in the movies, I hate to say. Yeah, and I think... Because in the movies, it's, you know, it, it portrays it as it is, which is euphoric and relaxing. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, every movie you see when someone does the heroin, uh, what you see right afterward is a big wave of of happiness wash over them. Right. And that's why you don't see movies about people snorting cocaine is because it's just not fun to see someone snort cocaine and then talk incessantly like a jerk for the next four hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, depending on how much you got. Uh, I've never done heroin, but I do know that its chemical name is uh, diamorphine. Yeah. And we can't talk about heroin without talking about morphine because it's kind of almost the same thing. Well, it's morphine's baby. Yeah. Basically, it's it's you can take 
morphine. Great and band name. <laughs> run it through morphine, morphine's baby. Oh, totally. It is kind of, now that I think about it. Remember the band Morphine? They were really good. I love Morphine. Yeah, they were good. great. Um, what kind of music would they be classified as? They're not quite grunge. They're not quite metal. No, Morphine was very chill. Okay, but they had like a real heavy guitar sound, right? Lots of feedback and distortion. No, I think you're thinking of a different band. Morphine had the saxophone oh. as like one of the main instruments. Instruments, unless you're I'm thinking, thinking of a different of Chicago. band. Yeah, you're thinking of Chicago. <laughs> At any rate, no. yes, morphine <laughs> I, is the the parent of heroin. Um, you take morphine and run it through a few hoops with some acids, and all of a sudden you have heroin. And they they apparently are so close together. Um, that the average user couldn't tell the difference between the two because your body basically takes heroin and turns it into morphine. The biggest differences are the um, the uh, how long the high lasts. It's much shorter with yeah. heroin, but I think it, it sets on faster. And then the addictiveness. Heroin is even more addictive than morphine, and morphine is awfully addictive itself. But heroin is... Yeah apparently just in a whole different league as far as addictiveness goes. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Uh, and that's certainly how they portray it in movies as well, uh, to be fair. Right. It's like, it's, although there are movies that show, like Pulp Fiction is a good example of, of a functioning heroin addict. Yeah. But usually that's not the case in a movie. No, it's true. And I mean, um, yeah, they usually do show how just kind of gross it gets yeah. for heroin addicts. There's, it's It's rare. It's rare that it's it's not that part isn't included. Like think about um, uh, what was the name of that movie? It's Jared Leto and Jennifer oh, Connelly. Good Lord, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, that uh, that was harrowing. I always say I got pink eye from watching that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was that dirty, dude. Oh man, that's a perfect way to say it. I, I mean, there's who can forget that one image of the. Uh, when he injected into that festering sore. Yeah, that abscess of... I, I think I came across something that I think is what it was. It's called wound botulism. Ugh. And that's a that's a side effect, a risk of, of heroin, um, which, I mean, if you think heroin's glamorous, just look up wound botulism or gangrene or an abscess from an injection site. And you might or change don't. Your mind. Uh, no, and do, also, as a matter of fact. <laughs> if you're thinking about doing heroin, do okay. look that up. Um, Requiem for a Dream is also a good example of why they don't make movies about cocaine and speed because the probably the most unsettling aspect of that movie is the the subplot with uh, or the plot line with uh, Ellen Burstyn with, with Ellen Burstyn. Man, yeah. that was hard to watch. It was very hard to watch. Although some parts of it were pretty funny, like when the TV's just straight up talking to her. <laughs> yeah, it was hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> that man, that movie was nuts. Okay, so back to heroin. Um, there's Apparently, uh, th there is a very pure form of heroin, which makes sense. I mean, any kind of processed drug like cocaine or something like that, sure. um, there's going to be a purest form of it. But far and away, the vast majority of people who use that drug are never going to encounter that purest form. It gets cut, and there's impurities that are introduced to make it less pure so you can sell more. Um, and so the, the heroin goes from like this off-white kind of slightly grayish color to everything from like orange and brown to black, um, like black tar heroin, like one of the most famous heroin varieties ever from what I've heard is um, comes from Mexico and it's just really bottom of the barrel stuff. Like imagine that the purest form is a uh, almost white powder and you're shooting black tar that kind of gives you an idea of how far from purity black tar heroin is. Yeah, I saw that that um, black tar heroin is usually cut with either burned cornstarch or lactose. Great. There's which, also uh, there's cheese heroin too, which is supposedly um, pretty rough as well as far as impurities go. But it also cheese. just sounds gross, like it cheese does. heroin. <laughs> yeah, why did why take a word that's great like cheese and, and screw and it attach up. it to heroin? That's right. Uh, the other ways it can be sold, uh, which I didn't know, it can be sold as a salt, which you know how in movies, if they're injecting it, they always cook it up in the spoon. And I think part partially why movies glamorize it is because just cinematically to shoot, um, to film 
someone cooking something in the spoon and the whole process right. is just, you know, it's interesting looking. It looks good on screen. It looks so glamorous. It does in a little, in a weird way. Um, but when you sell it as a salt, it does not need to be heated and dissolved. It's just, uh, I guess you can just dissolve it like salt would dissolve in water. Right, right. Um, you can smoke it. Uh, you can snort it. You can put it in your butt. <laughs> mm-hmm. You sound like um, like Chris Farley in Black Sheep. <laughs> Never saw it. Uh, there's this part where he's like shooting, snorting, smoking, dropping. I've just I've seen too much Chris Farley in my life. He's yeah. He's constantly in my head. Uh, or you can eat heroin, apparently. Yeah, especially cheese heroin. Oh, really? Or is that <laughs> a joke? I don't know. It's okay. A joke. <laughs> um, so. That's there's like a, a bunch of different kinds of heroin you can get depending on where you are. It's going to come from different places in the world, which we'll talk about. Um, and there's just no denying it gets you super duper high when you when you do heroin. Um, the problem is is that within a few hours of that, you start to enter heroin withdrawals. And we'll talk about exactly what goes on in the brain a little more. But basically, your brain is saying, oh, I, I need more of what you just gave me because I adjusted to life with that um, with that level of dopamine release that it, it triggered. Um, and now everything's just horrid and black. And again, this can start in just a few hours depending on how many times you've shot heroin, how much of a dependence you've developed, how much tolerance you've developed. And all these factors come together to determine just how bad your withdrawal symptoms are. Yes. Uh, you know, most movies... The glamorize heroin for a little while, but then we'll also show the dark side, like you said, and usually we'll include a uh, kicking heroin scene. Yeah, eat uh, your very soup. famously, <laughs> very famously in Train Spotting when he rattles off that list uh, when he locks himself in his apartment. Uh, Ewan McGregor and lists out all the things that he needs to successfully kick. Mm-hmm. What is he? Very list? funny. Uh, I just pulled it up here: uh, music, tomato soup, tint, indigo, mushroom soup, eight tins. Of a consumption, uh, cold ice cream, vanilla, one large tub of, magnesia milk, one bottle of pharma, uh, paracetamol mouthwash, vitamins, mineral water, Lucas Aid, pornography, one mattress, one bucket for urine, one for feces, and one for vomitus. Yeah, supposedly, uh, after a while, the withdrawal gets so bad that you just can't get out of bed to to poop or pee or vomit. Yeah. But you are still going to vomit and poop. Um, withdrawal symptoms kick in terrible diarrhea, terrible vomiting. Um, and it's the thing is, is the withdrawal is almost never fatal, but it can be fatal. And it's not from the withdrawal symptoms themselves. It's secondary to it. Like you are vomiting and peeing and um, pooping so much that yeah. you can become dehydrated. Your electrolyte balances can go uh, off and you can die of heart failure um, because the electrical impulses in your heart are no longer functioning correctly. But if you know what you're doing um, and you especially do it under medical supervision, you can yeah. have a far easier and, and um, much less life-threatening experience of kicking heroin. The good news is this. Even if you are the, um, the, the person who is most addicted to heroin in the world right now, if you decided to kick it, you have four to five or six really bad days of, ahead of you before mm-hmm. you're free of your heroin addiction. It's that simple. Any heroin, um, I want to keep saying heroin addict. We definitely don't say that anymore. But any person addicted to heroin walking around today, Chuck, is just a week away from being free of heroin. It's just that that would be the worst week of their entire lives. But they can do it. Every single one of them can do it. An entire uh, physician's practices and um, convalescent centers and rehabs have been set up to medically assist in uh, making the withdrawal process, you know, easier and safer so that it does increase the chance that they're not going to be like, forget this, I just need some heroin and everything will be fine again. Yeah, and, um, you know, you're probably going to get, if you're under medical supervision, some sort of sedative or a drug that mimics heroin. Um, most commonly, I think, methadone, oh, these unless days, that's changed. Yeah, it's like Suboxone now. Which oh, is, really? 
Yeah, it really binds tightly to your opioid receptors. So it blocks heroin when you're doing it. Um, so you become less and less dependent on heroin. And then the suboxone is just much less uh, addictive or habit forming because it's just yeah. much less potent. So you can get off of the suboxone after you're off of the heroin. So why heroin makes you feel so good? Um, people, you know, we don't fully understand the brain chemistry. Um of exactly how that works. But uh, we do know that the chemicals, you know, once it gets in, in your brain, the brain breaks it down into other chemicals, and those chemicals um, sort of just close down the things that normally regulate your dopamine, and so your brain makes a bunch of dopamine. Right, right. So you've got a bunch of dopamine going, but it also affects other parts of your brain too to where, say, um, you're – Basically, imagine your brain chemistry normally is at, in this nice kind of harmony, and then heroin comes in and just totally overwhelms it with a tidal wave of dopamine. Well, your brain says, oh, geez, well, I need to, to up all of the production of all of these other um, neurochemicals so that I reach homeostasis again. So that jacks all of the levels up. Um, and then when the heroin dies back um, because your dose is wearing off, your dopamine levels drop, but then all these other levels are still up, and all of a sudden it's like your brain is screaming in a in a crowded room where everybody just stops talking, and it's just your brain screaming now, right? Or like the music cuts off, and your brain was trying to talk loud over the music. It's very yeah. much like that. And so some of these other chemicals can produce some really unpleasant sensations, and the upshot of it is that that dopamine, the one thing that's making you feel really, really good, is the one thing that's truly lacking then because your brain isn't right. making it naturally. Um, it's making all this other stuff that makes you feel quite uncomfortable uh, in much higher amounts. And that's that's when you say, I need some more heroin. And the other thing is this. As your brain starts making more and more and more of these other neurochemicals, you need more and more and more heroin yeah. to release increasing, increasingly larger amounts of dopamine just to get to normal. That's what they mean when they say, just to get to normal, I have to do this much heroin. And then I have to do even more to get high. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what's called tolerance. And the more tolerance you have the worse your withdrawal symptoms are going to be because that means when you stop with the heroin, the levels of everything else are really, really high, and the dopamine is way back down in the basement. Um, and that's that's basically heroin in a nutshell. Yeah, and, you know, tolerance, there's tolerance for every drug in the world, uh, cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, everything. But um, it feels like heroin's, uh, the t it's just such a dangerous game you're playing there with the tolerance levels and then getting off and getting back on right. more so a little probably more so than other drugs even and then the, well the other thing that makes it dangerous too is again withdrawal itself is very rarely fatal especially when it's assisted medically but um heroin itself is extraordinarily dangerous too because one of the big effects that it has on your body is lowered respiration. So you aren't taking very deep breaths any longer. And you can actually die of like carbon monoxide poisoning because you're not exhaling enough carbon monoxide Jeez. or you're not getting in enough oxygen and you basically just stop breathing or you die of hypoxia because your the heroin overwhelmed your ability to breathe basically when you've done too much when you've done a fatal dose wow yeah all right let's take a break and we will talk about the super interesting history of heroin right after this Okie dokie. So, uh, you know, we've, I think everyone sort of knows that heroin, two sort of big facts about heroin that are super interesting that everyone always says mm -hmm. is that heroin is a brand name or a trade name mm -hmm. and that heroin uh, used to be readily prescribed, uh, kind of like cocaine was. Yeah. Uh, in this case, for, for pain as a pain medication. And we're talking about the, the opium poppy plant, the pepaber. Somniferon, 
And since ancient Egypt is like 1500 BCE at least, people have been using this to treat uh, pain, this narcotic to treat pain. Yeah. So if we just held with opium, I mean, it's, you know, being uh, addicted to opium is bad enough. But the world would definitely be a much different place if we just stayed with opium, just kept it natural, you know what I'm saying? But no, no, that's not what we do. We figure out ways to make things even more robust and more amazing. And so uh, I think in, uh, oh, I'm not sure exactly when, but in the, the 1800s, definitely before the 1860s, the German um, chemical company Merck uh, isolated morphine from opium. So you didn't need all the other stuff anymore. You just had straight up morphine. And this was good in, on, in one respect. Like we now had a genuinely powerful anesthetic analgesic to where when somebody was in a great deal of pain, say having their leg amputated in a field hospital during the Civil War, you could give them morphine and they wouldn't suffer as much. So in Mm -hmm. that respect, it was really good. The problem is, is we didn't understand addiction anywhere near like we do today. And so a lot of those people who got morphine when their leg was amputated came back from the war like, uh, where can I get some more morphine? I could really use some right now. And morphine addiction became really pronounced it by, you know, the 1870s, 1880s in the United States. Yeah, and there were a couple of big years uh, after this. Big, um, big events happened in 1874 and 1898. In 1874, there was a chemist named uh, C.R. Alder Wright, and he wanted to transform morphine into something that wasn't as addictive. So he tried this process where he um, it was called uh, acetylation, where he basically tried to cause it to react with an acid to change the composition of it to make it less addictive. He created uh, diacetyl morphine, which is heroin, and he gave some to his dog, as you do, mm-hmm. and his dog did not uh, fare too well, did not die, but almost did. He stole so, his stereo later. <laughs> And he said, you know what, Uh, this stuff is dangerous. Uh, I'm going to put it away. I'm going to publish this paper. No one really paid much attention to this paper until a man named Heinrich Dresser in 1898 Mm -hmm. uh, for the Bear Company picked up this paper and said, let me pick up where he left off. Yeah, and he did. And he he basically recreated that um, diamorphine concoction, and heroin was born. He gave it to some test subjects. One of them said that it made him feel heroish. Is that how you would say it? Yeah, heroish. H-E-R-O-I. Almost there. S-C-H. Yeah. So these are Germans we're talking about here. So they love the S-C-H sound for sure. <laughs> but but because um, I think one thing we left off is not only does heroin get you high, it also boosts your confidence tremendously as well. And mm-hmm. that's what that guy was describing. He felt high, he felt confident, and he described it as heroic. And so that's where the trade name heroin came from was um, from uh, Dresser basically saying, that's that's a great name for this. Uh, so I'm going to call it heroin. And we will cure the world's morphine addicts of their morphine addiction. And funny enough, they did. Because everybody was like, heroin's a great way to treat morphine addiction. The problem is, is once they kicked morphine, they were super duper addicted to heroin. And they were even worse off than they had been before. Yeah, it's funny. The the word heroin, it's so so commonplace now. You don't really think about it being a trade name. But it totally sounds like a trade name when you think about other drugs at the time. Right. Like it sounds like a, a modern sort of pharmaceutical. And well, actually, these days those names are just terrible. Like uh, Dr. Pinkle White's Feel Good Oil was next to it on the <laughs> shelf, you know? Yeah, but now like pharmaceutical drug names, are they all try and work in. Uh, well, I guess they did that with heroin because it makes you feel heroic. But they try and work in how great it makes you feel into mm-hmm. the name itself. Like – well, I don't know if I should name check any, but no, don't. I, I can think of a few off the top of my head. Yeah, and like they all have to work the letter X in. If X isn't in there, it's not going to sell. That's like the mantra of the pharmaceutical yeah. industry. It's really manipulative when you think about it. Just a tad. They teach you how to pronounce it to your doctor. <laughs> so um, they did these human trials of heroin, uh, which were about four weeks long of getting heroin. As a patient, mm-hmm. uh, if you had a cough or a sore throat, you felt pretty great, obviously. Um, <laughs> Can you no imagine <laughs> just going and getting like some heroin lozenges for a, a sore throat? Yeah. 
I wonder if those still exist anywhere. Um, probably not. I'm sure everybody took them. I bet you there's like, you know, buried in some attic drawer somewhere. Somebody's got some heroin lozenges from back then. So uh, Bayer said the drug is safe. Um, it's non-habit forming. We'll even put that on the label. And here's the downside is these analgesic effects last a few hours. So if you've got – if you're sick and you've got a cough and a, a sore throat, um, you, you're going to be taking this stuff like four or five times a day for a mm-hmm. couple of weeks because mm-hmm. it makes you feel good every time you take it. A few hours later, it wears off. You take some more. And before you know it, you're addicted to heroin. Right. I mean, there's probably no drug in the world where you do it just once and you're automatically physically addicted or dependent on it, right? Is but that – is do people claim that to be true? Oh, yeah. They claim that about acid, for goodness sake. Like, they, like yes, they say that about every single drug, which is the problem because if you are a brave soul and you say, well, I'll, it probably won't happen to me and I'll see, I'll see what it's like, and then you try it and you find you're not addicted, you're like, oh, well, they were lying – I'll just go do some more. But if you say something like you're probably not going to get addicted the first time, but with a drug like heroin in particular, you're really playing with fire every time you do it because you come that much closer to to being likely to be addicted to it. Um, Right. I think it would make somebody maybe think twice before trying it even that first time rather than just trying to scare them off like, um, you know, no, you're going to be addicted immediately and you're going to kill your parents kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Don't don't <laughs> lie to people. So uh, the next decade kind of comes and goes. Heroin, it becomes more obvious that it uh, was dangerous and that it was addictive. Bayer continued selling it um, until about 1913. Mm-hmm. Um, but as early as 1906, there was something called the Council of Pharmacy, uh, Pharmacy and Chemistry of the American Metal, Medical Association. And it had, there were warnings saying like, hey, heroin can get really addictive. Uh, in 1909, and this is a full seven years before Bayer quit selling it, mm-hmm. um, 1906. And then in 1909, uh, there were people, the lawmakers met in Shanghai uh, with some doctors for the International Opium Commission. Mm-hmm which I'm sure was quite a party. Oh, it was a rager. And they said that, you know what? Opium and all these drugs related to opium are really dangerous. They're prone to abuse. And it's up to all of you countries uh, to regulate this via the International Opium Convention at The Hague in 1912. But it's up to you how you want to do this in your country. Yeah, it was opium and cocoa leaves and their derivatives and salts, I think is how they put it. And they basically yeah. said... There, yeah, there's some real problems coming from these, and we need to we need to do something about it. Go figure out how to do it. And so the United States said, "Oh, we've got this covered. We're going to pass the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, which is now these days just called the Harrison Act, and it basically established the war on drugs as we understand it today, way back in 1914." Um, yeah. Do you remember our CIA dosing LSD, unsuspecting oh. Americans with LSD episode? Boy, do I. One of the best. Do you remember George White, like the guy who was actually running like the, the experiments? Yeah. He was one of those early um, drug agents, narcotics agents, who was, you know, beating up addicts because of the Harrison Act. It basically gave them permission to. Um, and one of the things about the Harrison Act that was so insidious, aside from the fact that they, they, it kind of promoted this whole, um, this air of propaganda, like lying to people, like, you know, telling people that if, you're, if your wife tries heroin, she's going to run off with a, um, you know, a black guy or something like that, like that kind, that level of propaganda of yeah. associating certain groups with certain drugs to scare other people from taking those drugs. Just horrific stuff that um, it also... It said almost explicitly, addiction is not a disease, so you can no longer use these drugs to help somebody kick these drugs. So doctors started going to prison, like trying to help people kick heroin by giving them like a heroin regimen to, to, to help them ease off of it. You would land in prison for that kind of thing, and doctors did get thrown in prison for it. Yeah, and Ed made a really good point here, one that I'd never considered. Um, Something else about the Harrison Act is you tend to think of, like, the old days as being super conservative about things like drug use. 
But before they were made illegal, the drugs were still there and drug uh, people that were addicted to these drugs were still there. But there wasn't the same stigma. They were sort of, I mean, they were outcasts of society, Mm -hmm. but they weren't criminals yet. They were people that still needed help and that you could rehabilitate. Um, And there was, I think, some more compassion even. But the Harrison Act comes along and all of a sudden you're a criminal uh, and the only way to get these drugs is and keep doing these drugs that you're addicted to is by being a criminal. Mm-hmm. And that created almost – it almost created the system that we're with today, uh, this this war on drugs, which is has shown to not work. Right. It definitely did in that it, it, it's – there are some reasons why heroin in particular – will always be really hard to eradicate and why the Harrison Act was kind of wrong-headed. It set everything out on the wrong foot was this idea that if you can just punish people into not using heroin any longer. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't. And there's some reasons why you, you can't do that because as long as heroin is around, there are going to be people who become addicted to heroin and who are addicted to heroin. And then if you couple that with the idea that Addiction is not a disease, so you should not get any kind of medical treatment for it. And we're actually going to arrest doctors who try. Then all you've just done is create like a huge legal and moral quagmire for your society. But that's what it did. But there are some reasons why heroin will probably always stick around. And that is, first of all, it's very easy to make, right? Yeah. I mean, you're sort of in a, I mean, it's like with most drugs, you're in a lose lose situation if you're trying to eradicate it. Because you can't start at the user end. That has shown to not work, mm-hmm. like you said. And in the case of most drugs, you can't start at the processing end either because, like you said, it's easy to make. Um, it's it's just a, a chemical process at work. It doesn't require super expensive equipment. Um, that's why if you get busted, you can either just ditch your equipment or pack it up pretty quickly and take it with you. Mm-hmm. Um it is uh, – it's just difficult to disrupt the process of actually making the heroin. Yeah. Basically, if you could set up a still for whiskey out in mm-hmm. the woods, you could probably make a heroin um, processing operation. The thing is, if you're in, like, the Smoky Mountains or something like that, you might set up your heroin processing operation and then go, well, wait, I need some opium poppies. Those mm-hmm. are kind of hard to come by in the Smokies. And you're right. It's very hard to find – opium poppies in the United States. That's one thing that the United States government and law enforcement has done, has basically eradicated opium-producing poppy plants from the United States. But, Except on the TV show Ozark. But I haven't gotten to that point yet, so be quiet. <laughs> but the, Oh, really? No, I haven't. The okay. point is, because I ended up going on starting Better Call Saul, and now I'm oh, super boy. into that. Gotcha. Um, but the the problem with that is that, yes, we uh, we kept it out of the United States. It's not here. But pop, poppies grow really well just about everywhere. And as long as you have a country where officials who are supposed to be watching whether people are cultivating poppies or not can be bribed, yeah. um, poor people who can be forced into cultivating poppies or farmers who can be bought off to to cultivate poppies. Poppies are going to grow. And over time, they have been eradicated from one place or another, but then they just kind of pop up somewhere else around the world. And that part of the world becomes the the global supplier of uh, opium for heroin processing. Yeah. I mean, for uh, most of the 19th century, China was the big leader in opium exports, uh, along with India. And then World War II comes along. The drug trade kind of shuts down because shipping is just super restricted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Communist Party takes over in China, and they said, "No, no, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do this anymore." And they kind of stopped. It was really effective. And China isn't a big opium supplier ever since then. But then it moved to what's called the Golden Triangle, which is uh, Laos, uh, Myanmar, and Thailand, um, as well as the Golden Crescent, which is. Different parts of the Middle East, but mainly if we're talking opium production, we're talking about Afghanistan. Yeah, and when the United States invaded Afghanistan, like one of the one of the sidelines it was doing was destroying opium opium fields, mm-hmm. and I guess it worked for a little while, but not really. Like we were carrying out drone strikes on um, heroin processing facilities, and 
basically did nothing to disrupt the the heroin trade. And then as fewer and fewer U.S. troops were in Afghanistan, the the um, heroin just came back. Opium poppies came back and heroin processing came back. And even more than the United States military was effective, the Taliban had been more oh, effective. Yeah. Before the United States went into Afghanistan, when the Taliban <clears throat> basically ruled Afghanistan, um, there was very little opium production going on, and it actually increased while the, U- the United States was there. And then after the United States basically left Afghanistan, when the Taliban came back, they were it was like Taliban free and easy. They started yeah. looking the other way on opium production. <laughs> yeah, because they could make money off it. Exactly. So that's another thing that's actually used kind of frequently. Like where if you are buying heroin, you are probably funding a, a terrorist group. It sounds ridiculous and made up, but it's actually probably true depending on where you are in the world. Um, if you're in the United States, you're probably funding a, a vicious drug cartel uh, because most of the, the opium uh, that makes its way as heroin into the U.S. comes from Mexico and Colombia, which I didn't know. Right. Yeah, and the other 90% of the global heroin supply is coming from Afghanistan right now. But like we said, you know, you, you squash it in one area, it's going to pop up in another. It's, um, it's, it's very simple supply and demand, and it's never going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed, in fact, uh, this is – he should uh, totally trademark this line. He said, a war on drugs is like a war on water when you know it's going to rain tomorrow. <laughs> did he make that up? I don't know. I've never heard it before, so let's That's say he great. did. Really crystallizes it. Yeah, it's a good writer for sure. Should we uh, should we take our final break here? You bet, Chuck. All right. <laughs> we'll be back with more heroin right after this. You you mentioned World War II, Chuck, um, and that it, it almost entirely shut down because yeah. shipping was so restricted during World War II. Everybody was watching every ship, not just the United States watching stuff that was coming into the country. People were watching it going from one place to another. It might get torpedoed. It was just really tough to smuggle things during World War II. And I read that that same thing's going on now because of the coronavirus pandemic. That oh, interesting. Because of things like shelter-in-place orders um, or restricted travel, uh, that it's way, way harder to smuggle or even just go score um, than it was before the pandemic. And as a result, they think a heroin drought is, is coming on or has already started. And so oh, prices wow. are going to rise. And probably more and more people who were addicted to heroin before the pandemic will come out of the pandemic not not addicted to heroin anymore, but like they gave meth a try and now they're really into that. Have you ever heard the old uh, Kamal Nanjiani bit about the heroin plus Tylenol cold medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've refreshed my memory. It's been a while. Well, there was, I can't remember. I think it has a name, like a designer drug or whatever, which was basically heroin and Tylenol cold medicine mixed. <laughs> and he just has this, it was pretty early in his comedy career when he was just doing stand up, but right. he just has a very funny bit about the fact that he, uh, you know, you're already doing heroin. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're all, and then his voice and everything is just so perfect. You're yeah. already doing heroin. Yeah. I love that guy. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, he's great. He's a big movie star now. He is. A good for him. I'm glad for him. He's he's a good dude. He did our uh, one of our variety shows that, that time. He did. Killed it. Everybody yep. killed it that night, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was a really good show. That was a lot of fun. Josh yeah. Bierman and uh, Nick Thune, maybe? Nick Thune performed uh so did um hampton yount did some killer stand-up that's right kamal nanjiani i mean and uh we had nate DeMeo did a a little memory palace live too yep and um what was the ucb group i want to say rawhide but it wasn't rawhide it wasn't comanche oh convoy convoy did we have all of them on one stage yes dude one night 
Well, that's Largo a good night. in L.A. Yeah. That was a great show. That was a great show. They didn't even need us. We were barely there. We launched a million careers that night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, all right. So we were talking about supply and demand. Uh, that is always going to be a problem with the war on drugs mm-hmm. because, like you said, you can't arrest people into not wanting to do drugs. Uh, this just proven to not be a deterrent. When people want to do drugs, they're going to find them and they're going to do them. Um, the supply is hard to eradicate because of all the things we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't j- wipe out all the – if the demand is there, then they're going to find places where the government is bribable or weak enough to plant those poppy fields. Right. And as long as there are desperate people and poor people or people that are addicts, then there will be drug mules and people that are willing to – either willing to smuggle the drugs or a cartel who will hold your family hostage to force you to smuggle those drugs. Can you imagine that being your reality today, like right now? Nah, man. Like you're running across like a, a desert right now with a bunch of heroin on you because your wife is being held hostage, your wife and kid. Like that's happening to you right this second. That yeah, happens to people sometimes. Like it's so rare – and especially here, like in the United States, it's just like such a remote worry that there's no reason to lose any sleep over it for you. Yeah. But don't forget about the person that that's actually happening to right now. And mm-hmm. like how, what, what, what they must be thinking during that run across the desert. Like how stressed out are they? Like what are, what's going through their head? I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to actually be in that situation. Like when I imagine it, I imagine it as you do like experience a movie it's yeah. remote it's it's fictitious it's it's um fantasy these are characters but when when i can just get my brain just right i, I it, a little bit of it floods in and it's just uh, overwhelming how yeah. nuts and horrific that that experience would be yeah and i think that's something that uh well i mean i think if you're if you have a problem with drug addiction you're not considering a lot of things but Certainly one thing that's probably the last thing you're considering is how it got to you, how it got to your dealer and the devastation that it has wreaked along the way, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. That's a that's absolutely true. I think that's an excellent point for people to remember. So Ed wrapped up this research with a something I'd never really thought about about marijuana being a gateway drug. Um we've talked about that and a lot of people scoff at that notion, but mm-hmm. He makes a case here that kind of makes sense that uh, the system with marijuana in the 1940s and 50s, um, especially in the in urban areas and with with jazz clubs and jazz musicians, it kind of set up a system where heroin could find a pretty easy entry point. Yeah, because uh, it was coming in largely from in the beginning of the 20th century up to the first. Uh, well, I guess the 40s and 50s. So at the beginning of the 20th century, it was interrupted by World War II, and then it came back with a vengeance in the 40s and 50s. And it was being imported largely by um, Asian people who didn't know people outside of their community. So they figured out how to connect with the jazz musicians who already had pot friends. And the jazz musicians started turning their pot friends pot on. friends? Yeah. <laughs> on, uh-huh. on to heroin. And... Part of the reason why heroin was able to kind of make such entree into American culture, especially through this route, was that all these people were not, they weren't drug naive. They'd used pot before. They'd smoke pot yeah. all the time. They knew for a fact that it wasn't addictive. It didn't turn you into a fiend like had been depicted hysterically in this government propaganda against pot. And so all of the warnings against heroin were probably just as full of hot air too. And it just turns out that they happened to be wrong this time. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the jazz scene was rife with heroin abuse. Uh, Miles Davis and Charlie Parker and Ray Charles. Yeah. Ray Charles. Totally. It's crazy. Not jazz, but yeah, he counts. <laughs> I remember when Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, when he uh, died, of a, oh, a fatal overdose. I know they, they tried to pin it on um, a jazz guy as his dealer. Oh, really? Yeah. Super kind of throwback thing. But even still today, they're like, yeah, jazz people can't be trusted. They love heroin. 
Billie Holiday was fully addicted to heroin. It was, I, it was all over the jazz community. Yeah. Because, again, so this is one of those things where you try it once, you try it twice, and all of a sudden you're doing it a lot more and you have to do more and more and more. And if it's all around you and everybody seems to be having a good time despite puking their guts out first, yeah. um, you might give it a try. Uh, that's just super interesting, the idea that, that pot was connected as like this, this gateway for America to heroin because they're just such worlds apart. Yeah, and alcohol. I mean, if you look at the history of jazz, uh, heroin and cirrhosis are like two of the biggest factors mm, in, true. in killing off jazz musicians. Yep, true to that. Really um, interesting. One thing we didn't really touch on, well, two things. One, the, the epidemic of fentanyl-laced heroin, uh, which apparently if you're buying that on purpose, it might be sold to you as magic or bud ice. Oh, God. <laughs> but fentanyl is about 25 to 50 times stronger than heroin, so the fatal dose is much, much, much uh, lower. Uh, it takes way less to kill you. Right. But if you don't know that you're buying fentanyl-laced heroin, you're doing your regular dose of heroin, mm-hmm. that fentanyl can very easily kill you, and that happens a lot. It's happening yeah. more and more. Uh, no idea who's doing it. They think uh, it might be coming from China, but who knows what the deal is with that. But that's one big problem w- with uh, heroin addiction is you might overdose. You, the The likelihood of you overdosing with the introduction of fentanyl is way higher than it was before. I think the whole thing really started to, to pick up steam about 2013. And then the whole reason there's a heroin epidemic right now in the United States, Chuck, is because the a few pharma companies got America and a large part of the world hooked on opioid painkillers like Oxycontin. Yeah. And the government said, well, this is a real problem. We need to get everybody off of uh, opioids. So, um, Purdue Pharma, you need to make this Oxycontin impossible to inject or snort or whatever. And they did. They made Oxycontin so that when you crushed it, it turned into a gel that you couldn't do anything with. Um and nobody could get high off of OxyContin anymore. You couldn't find it. It was too expensive. It was just impossible to get. But heroin suddenly made a huge appearance. Yeah. And it was cheaper. It did the trick. You could find it just about everywhere. And now all of a sudden, combined with the 2008 recession and all of the despair that that generated, there's a heroin epidemic in the United States that's still raging and going strong. And we have... A lot of those pharmaceutical companies and the the agencies that are supposed to regulate them more closely to to blame for that. Yeah, I remember in college there was a a one year, and it was probably wasn't even a year, but like one season where heroin kind of came through town, and in my crowd, like not my close friends, none of them did it, but right. I knew a I knew a person through a person who I'd you know known like very loosely socially that she OD'd and died from heroin during this like several month period. But I just remember it was being talked about a lot and it was just around and people were doing it and uh, it never invaded my inner circle. But uh, I just remember that was a kind of a scary time in college when it kind of blew through and then kind of blew back out again. It wasn't like a, I mean, I'm sure there were always people that were doing heroin at some point in Athens, but it was like a thing for a little while. Yeah, no, it was it was always very hard to find. It's just basically non-existent um, when That's I was what around. what I get the feeling, yeah. You know, and then it started to really pick up steam in like the mid-2000 aughts, I think. Yeah. It's weird. But yeah, that's, yeah. Heroin is a demon, Chuck. It is a demon. And this girl was, she was looking back probably 22 years old. What a waste, man. Yep. That's sad. Um... Well, that's heroin, everybody. Don't do it. Don't do, do it. Just don't. Just go your whole life saying, never done heroin, and I'm all good. You're not missing out on that much. Okay? Okay. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. This is about, we heard a lot about peanut butter. That has proven to be a, quite a popular and somewhat divisive podcast episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we did hear from most people that said, yeah, outside of America, a lot of people think peanut butter is weird. We did hear from a few people in England and elsewhere that were like, what are you talking about, Josh? I love peanut butter. Yeah, like uh, two people. It, it, yeah, it felt fairly anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But this is about neither of those. So this is uh, from Daniel 
uh, volts Son. in Louisville. Okay. Did you say Danielson? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, been listening for years to all the great podcasts. I recently, uh, recently listened to Peanut Butter and was greatly entertained as a lifelong peanut butter lover. Jif uh, is my brand of choice. He even convinced me to try peanut butter mayo sandwich, which was okay. Definitely to put more mayo on there next time. Yes, mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. We heard from some peanut butter mayonnaise uh, people who tried it and were like, man, I didn't really like it or I didn't get it. So <laughs> right. maybe it's just me. Uh, while listening, I couldn't help but think of the colorblindness podcast you did and how cool it was to hear something uh, be explained to me because, frankly, nobody ever cared to do so. And as much as I love to learn, it never crossed my mind to learn about it. You may be wondering why a show about peanut butter triggered colorblindness. Turns out the rest of the world thinks peanut butter is brown. (laughs) I cannot imagine opening a jar of delicious green peanut butter (laughs) and seeing a nasty brown substance uh, resembling something I don't want to think about eating. Sometimes, uh, somehow I thought this for 18 years before anyone knew the true color of peanut butter was green, before anyone told him that. Right. Uh, I still get teased about thinking peanut butter is green, but to me, it's as green as green gets. Uh, Reality really is just perception. It's amazing to me that the world can be seen so differently through every single person's eyes. Who knows how many different colors of peanut butter there are out there. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for the show, guys. You keep my days interesting and entertaining. Uh, P.S. Your marathon podcast helped me uh, know what to expect from my first marathon and scared me to death, but I did finish without the unfortunate issues that some people go through during a race. Congratulations. And that is Daniel Volts from Louisville, Kentucky. Nice work, Daniel. Um, I don't know about green peanut butter. I don't. I, I, don't, I think the <laughs> weird orangey-brown it is normally is my preference for sure. A.K.A. peanut colored. <laughs> right. Uh, well, if you want to let us know how um, something we talked about triggered some interesting memory, that kind of thing really fascinates us. So we want to hear it. You can send it to us in an email. Address it to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 